Blog Talk Radio. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jack Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to V Radio. It's been quite some time. Um, I'm still dealing with a few little technical glitches. For whatever reason, Blog Talk's uh, host call-in number would not uh, pick up. So I'm going to enable the chat room, and hopefully Heron will call in for, because uh, I gave him the phone number to do so, um, or uh, I'll be able to find another way to connect him. If not, we will figure out a way to reschedule. So I'm sorry about this on our inaugural relaunching of the show. Um, v Radio should be back now at least once a week um, for the near future. Uh, I have shared a link to support the show on Patreon, if you choose to do so, I want to apologize to the people who <laughs> set themselves up as patrons when I set up my Patreon some time ago um, in anticipation of me starting the show and not having actually been ready to start the show yet. Um, I sent messages to all those people to explain to them what had happened, but I guess I had gotten some money from them and I had not even done any shows yet. So, uh, one second... Now asking Heron if there's a phone number I can direct to call him at. So anyway, I decided to try to come back to doing radio because I realized that I'd kind of lost myself into the grind of, you know, doing the jobs uh, that obviously don't really test myself mentally. Um, in addition to the fact that, uh, I just wasn't, you know, fulfilled doing any of that. So I'm going to attempt to connect Heron now uh, via dialing him. Hello. All right. Well, we got you in there. That's good. I had to do a little bit of last minute stuff there. I've never actually used this part of the blog talk service. Uh, for whatever reason, the phone number aspect was not picking up. Like it was as if it didn't work. So, but I've managed to find a different way to get on. So thank you, Heron, for coming on, and thank you for your patience. Um, well, I can barely it. hear you, unfortunately. Can you hear me okay? okay? Uh, yeah, you actually sound great. Let me speak a little louder. Okay, now you're on. better. Yeah, okay. yeah. Whatever you did, you moved closer to the mic or something. Yeah, I had to actually dig out a microphone that was totally mangled, so I'm surprised it worked at all. It's just been a while since I've used one. Um so let me take a moment to explain some things to the guests, and then we'll get started. Uh, so I had been gone for quite some time, and there were a few different things that I had remarked on that were going on in world politics and, and just in, uh, in general that I, I wanted to be able to get back on the air and interact with. And um, in addition to the fact that I, I had heard from a lot of different people that there really wasn't anything available anymore as far as media, aside from... Peter Joseph periodically appearing on Russia Today um, and occasional things about what's going on in the Venus Project. There really hasn't been much um, in the direction that we are in available. If that's not true, um, I look forward to hearing otherwise. But in the meantime, I wanted to go ahead and do that and offer up my services. Uh, I actually will have Douglas Millette on tomorrow evening. So if you guys want to tune in for that. Um, anyway, so... 
without further ado, uh, welcome, Heron. It's good to have you back on the show. It's been a long time since we've talked. It has been a long time. Yeah, I just got out of the I don't even remember when. Facebook. Years ago. Do you remember ago, when it was? It would have to yeah. have been years ago. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> how have you, uh, I mean, how have you been? Complex. I'm just, you know, I've been, I've been on this road for 50 years and, you know, movements come and go and, uh, and I participate with everything when it's going on, but I continue doing my own work in language stuff. And, uh, and that's what I've continued to, to be doing. And how has that been going for you? Uh, It's, it's, uh, outstanding actually it's uh, it's all beginning to come together i think i'm probably a year or two away from launching some of my stuff but uh, it's coming up real it's coming together real good so i'm i'm real pleased and happy now i noticed that uh and one of the things that when i was setting up the show you you let me know that you changed it from the way of language to tactical language would you like to take a moment and yeah. explain what meant into that um, well, it's just, it's just marketing, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's really, I mean, Gendo can be, I mean, it comes from the Japanese Gendo, which, which can be translated a bunch of ways. It's one literal translation would be way of language. Gendo is, is like Judo or Aikido. Do sure. is the, and Do is the, the character in Chinese, it's pronounced Dao. Daoism, it's the same character. Dao is the Chinese pronunciation. Do is the uh, Japanese pronunciation. I say, anyway, Chinese is Dao, Japanese is Do. So Gendo can mean uh, the way of language. Gen is language or speaking or any number of ways. Um, but, uh, Way of language, you know, method of language, tactics in language. There are a lot of ways to translate that. And I just happen to think tactical language, uh, I just like the way that sounds. So <laughs> that's what I'm calling it now. Well, I mean, if it makes it easier for people to understand, um, obviously that's always beneficial. But as you said, you know, marketing, so to speak, but just trying to communicate an idea in a way that people can understand is really important, especially if they're just kind of glancing at it somewhere online, you know, and they haven't really had an opportunity to, you know, take it in. In many cases, first, first impressions of ideas are definitely important. Yeah. And plus I still think even now my, my stuff is not for most people. I'd say probably less than 5% of people, right now in 2019 are really ready for the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I think it'll be more, the world will be more ready for this stuff five years from now as, as the chaos continues to increase and people begin to give up, you know, and and realize that they have no idea what the hell's going on or where it's all going. They'll be more open to rethinking, their thinking methods, I, I think, in five years. And I think, like I say, right now, my sense is maybe 5% of people are actually ready to re-examine their own languaging. Now, I remember Jacques Fresco used to talk a lot about the book um, Tyranny of Words. Are you familiar with that book? Oh, yeah. 
he also talked about Korzybski's Science and Sanity. That was the main, that's the book that, uh, that Stuart Chase's book came from. That uh, all came out of Korzybski's work from the early 1930s. And I guess the, I mean, well, let's, I mean, we've, I've had you on a long time ago, but for the people who are just like coming on now, let's try to take it back to the beginning. So like what <laughs> made you interested yeah. in language and when did it start? Uh, well, it goes back to the summer of 1967. Uh, I was living in Manhattan Beach, California, uh, and I smoked cigarettes at the time. And, and it was the summer, and I walked down. I, I lived about three blocks from the pier, right down on the beach. And, um, and I walked down to the liquor store to buy some cigarettes. And as I was walking into the liquor store, the most beautiful girl in the world's tiniest bikini walked into <laughs> the liquor store about five feet in front of me. And, you know, and I don't, you know, and she walked in and I walked in and apparently I was in some, I was, I'm guess kind of entranced by her. And I was just sort of staring at her, you know, slack jawed, you know, and, and all of a sudden I noticed she was giving me this really dirty look, you know, so I was, I realized that I'd just been gawking at her, you know. So I turned around embarrassed and there was a used book rack in front of me and I grabbed the first book I saw off that book rack and held it up in front of my face and pretended to be reading it, <laughs> you know, while really looking over it, over the book at her. And I don't really remember too much after that, except the next thing I remember was some guy was saying, is that all you want? And I looked around and she had just walked out the store and I was standing at the cash register with this book. And so I, I got two packs of Lucky Strikes and, and the book, which cost a dime, I think, because it was a used paperback uh, that they had. And I, I went, so I went home with my two packs of cigarettes and my uh, book and walked in the door and threw the book in the trash can because I wasn't a reader. I watched TV and, you know, and liked cars and girls. I didn't give a damn about reading. So anyway, that was the end of the book, or so I thought. Uh, and I don't know now whether it was a week later or a month later or whatever it was, I, I discovered the book laying behind the trash can. And, and I don't know why I started reading it. Uh, apparently my TV must've been broken because I can't imagine me at that time reading that book. Anyway, uh, I started reading that book and with, and I don't remember just exactly how long, but it was but not, too long before I was in that book and all of a sudden I just I had to put the book down because literally my entire life just collapsed I real I had this blinding realization that I didn't know anything I, everything I thought I knew who I was what I was what I was doing what I could do what I should do what I couldn't do but the whole thing just evaporate, evaporated and I realized it was just this story that I'd been sold and and never really questioned it and the whole thing collapsed inside of like 30 seconds at, at a certain point that's definitely and an it was on a oh yeah well it was the beginning of my life i never really recovered from that it was a friday i remember it was a friday afternoon or friday evening that 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 i that this happened to me the whole rest of the weekend i just sat in my apartment just sort of in a state of, I mean, it wasn't fun. I mean, it was, it was shocking. I was, you know, I mean, really my whole life just collapsed. 
And, uh, well, in any case, uh, by Monday, I was in the Air Force at the time, too. And by Monday, I had to go to work. And I managed to, you know, get together and put my uniform on and go into work. And uh, and I and people didn't seem to notice or react to me any differently, but I was in a different universe, and I, I never really recovered from that. And so I spent the next ten years, and that book was a book by a guy named Alan Watts. And um, so I I read everything I could find by him, and then he referenced other people, and I was reading. So I for the next ten years, and and Watts was heavy into Zen Buddhism, so I got heavy into Zen Buddhism. And uh, right. I spent the next 10 years meditating and reading and going to lectures and talking and writing notes and keeping journals. And after 10 years, I was really good at talking about it, but actually I was no closer to trying to figure out what I wanted to do with about anything. But what I had realized in those previous 10 years I had spent, for the most part, involved reading writing, speaking, and hearing. I was reading books and writing notes and talking to people and listening to people. It was all activity in the domain of language. And that's when I discovered uh, Alfred Korzybski. And one of my professors in college turned me on to Alfred Korzybski's book, Science and Sanity, which is the one uh, Fresco cited all the time. And um, so, uh, and that, all of a sudden, that that put a focus on I realized that all this activity that I'd been involved with trying to figure shit out involved language stuff and and Korzybski talks about the problems of language and how those things interfere with our ability to think and act uh, coherently and uh, that was the beginning of, of a new phase of my life because all of a sudden now I could see at least something I could do and one of the things I realized <coughs> was that if you've got a nagging question that's bothering you that you're constantly thinking about, there are two ways to uh, to get rid of a nagging question. One way is to find a satisfactory answer to that question. And another way is to realize that the question itself is nonsense. And, and that, that literally, it, just because it's the sequence of words in a particular order that you're obsessed with doesn't necessarily mean it's an actual question that can be answered. For instance, uh, if I was to ask you, do colorless green ideas sleep furiously? You wouldn't waste too much time worrying about that question because it's <laughs> right. clearly nonsense. But if you're asking a question like, what's the purpose of life? Or what is consciousness really? Or who am I? Those sound like questions that maybe you ought to be able to find an answer to. But when you start looking at the language of it, it turns out they're actually no more meaningful than do colorless green ideas sleep furiously. So those questions disappear, not because you find an answer to them, but because you found no way to ask the question meaningfully. So that's sort of Alan Watts, and then Alfred Korzybski 10 years later, and then a few other things. But those were the two, the two big uh, signposts on my path. You know, I would say that uh, one of the reasons that Fresco talked to us about language was just because uh, he discussed that one of the major complications in communication, which is pretty much key at succeeding in anything, I mean, well, certainly scientifically, um, was the fact that we had all these different languages and that they all had little nuances about them. And then 
then you get into the fact that there's dialects, which make it even more complicated. And then, you know, like, for example, the fact that there are words that in American English mean something entirely different in, you know, United Kingdom English. Um, and those two yeah. people can communicate with each other, but that there's going to be these things about it that will like, you know, I remember, for example, when I was in Ireland, somebody was helping me with my bags because we were on our vacation um, was said, do you want me to put these in the boot? And I was like, what the heck <laughs> yeah. is this guy talking about? I went, oh, yeah, that's right. I read in the book. He means the trunk. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, just to call somebody fit meant that they were attractive. It didn't even necessarily mean that they were like, you know, Jane Fonda or something. <laughs> like, you know, they, they weren't uh, aerobics instructors necessarily in their, in their body type, but it just meant that for whatever reason you found they were attractive. But um, yeah. the other nuances that seem to come out are from – uh, you know, because I work in a restaurant, I talk to people from a lot of different worlds, and I talk to some people from France, and I ask them, can you speak to French Canadians? And they said, to be honest with you, sometimes I can't understand a word they're saying. And, you know, it's still yeah. supposed to be the same language. Um, same thing with, I, I used to date a girl from Mexico, and I asked her if she could understand the Puerto Ricans. And she said, well, yeah, I, I understand everything they're saying, but they sound like they're whining about everything. <laughs> I was like, yeah. that's got to be really strange. Um, yeah. You know, that these little evolutions in language can happen. Uh, I mean, I guess how much of those kinds of distortions that come about through culture do you find yourself examining when you're looking for these language monkeys, as you call them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not at all, really. Uh, I don't really concern myself with other languages. English is taking over earth. I don't even, I don't even call it English anymore. I, I now call it earthling. Uh, anybody who's in the game of planet earth speaks earthling more or less. And there are a lot of differences. I mean, Singapore, uh, it, English is their stand, is their legal language. Same in Hong Kong and all sorts of places around the world where English is the official language of a plan, of a of a country uh, that doesn't even. Well, again, everyone is anyway. Ev everyone's learning English. So as far as I'm concerned, the issue is to straighten up English. Uh, the problems in English are severe. Although English, for some reason, it has something that's put it in the position to, to dominate the planet. Uh, that doesn't mean it's perfect and it's got serious flaws. And that's why I gave you those two, those links, uh, one of them to one of my podcasts called the five stupidities of English. There are several serious um, problems in the grammar and the grammatical structure in, in the, of the English language that imposes serious limitations in our ability to create any kind of sense out of anything. So, so I'm, I'm interested, basically I'm debugging English or I have debugged English. It's called earthling. And um, yeah. Have you ever um, looked at the fact that uh, language when spoken is a different issue as compared to language in writing, I, I would say that this is a, a common problem, particularly when you're interacting with somebody on social media and maybe you offended them more than you intended, or maybe they think you're uh, more, <laughs> more than you so I intended to offend them a little bit. Well, <laughs> I guess it would just be that they, they took something out of what you're saying, you know, that yeah. was not intended. 
you know, and then you talk to that yeah. person on the phone and then you fix it because they go, Oh, oh yeah. okay. That's what you mean. You know, I um, avoid a written communication whenever possible. I use it to establish verbal communication. So when I post on in Facebook, it's usually to get people's attention. And if they're interested, then uh, we go to, to, to voice because, uh, because yeah, written language and is just a completely different issue than spoken language. You can't really know what's going on when someone writes, uh, when they talk. When I like what we're doing right now, there's no time for me. You know, like the words that are coming out of my mouth, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. Okay, uh, my language machine is generating this stuff in real time. I don't sit here and think, well, in the next sentence, I'm going to I'm going to make this idea clear, and I'm going to use these words in this order, and then I'm going to have to get my lungs and my tongue and my jaw and everything, all the muscles coordinated to put out these. You know, all this stuff is absolutely automatic. It's being generated by my language machine according to the way it's been programmed. Now I've reprogrammed right. my language machine significantly. But when I, when you're writing though, see, I mean, you sit there and you think about this word or that. It, it's not spontaneous. It's not who they really are. If you want to know what's really going on with somebody, you need to talk to them. Because well, there's yeah, no time then, for them to to pre, uh, you know. I mean, the real language machine function shows up when people are talking. When they're writing, uh, it's all being edited and clarified to make it fit in nicely with how they want to project themselves rather than who they really are. Well, right, and then you you also have to factor in uh, nuances for things like body language. Uh, People, uh, well, that's can, a whole separate issue. No, but there's a whole that, yeah, that's a whole separate issue. I don't even deal with that. There are plenty of people oh, who okay. deal with that. I'm only interested in the language side of it, and that's why I really prefer what we're doing talking right now. Oh, sure. There's no, you know, this is it. Is me blowing puffs of air into my speaker for my microphone, and you doing the same thing on your end, and, and it's basically the product of our language machines. So uh, if you could think of, we'll say, I mean, not necessarily a specific order, but if there was one thing you could do or even a few things you could do right now that you would change about. I can tell that's an easy one. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. Well, not about how. Yeah, that's easy. And that's part of what I'm doing is I'm in the process of writing a book that I hope to finish maybe by, by the end of next year. And it's going to be called Gendo, Tactical Language for Parents of Pre-Teens. And there are, well, like I said, I've got the, this podcast called The Five Stupidities of English. The first two of those are absolutely crucial and responsible for about 95% of the stupidity that comes out of people's mouths. If you listen to a politician or a preacher or anybody you know, standing up blabbing about their shit, you know, most of it is nonsense. And most of it comes from the first two of the stupidities of English. And the first one is the simplest word of all. It's the most common word in English. You know what, you know what that is? No, hit me up. It's the word the. Okay. It, the a, word the is the that. most common. The word the accounts for about 
um, 6% of all printed text. Now, English has like 50,000 words in its standard vocabulary and a couple hundred thousand for the whole thing. But I mean, you know, most people have a vocabulary between 30 and 50,000 words. You know, and the word the comes up six words in a hundred. And by my estimations and by my explorations of this, it carries an unconscious, erroneous assumption with it about 95% of the time. So, so that means if, you know, in most people, their language machines sort of churning away day in and day out, maybe 10, 50,000 words a day going through their language machine. That means hundreds or thousands of occasions of statements or assertions with the word the in them. Again, this isn't out loud, but this is just what's churning around in their head. And 95% of those uh, occasions of the word the carry an erroneous assumption. Do you have any idea what that might be? Well, I mean, there's so many different variables. I, I guess just give me a good example. Okay, well, listen, if I uh, if we're sitting here and I say, uh, hey, go out in the garage and, and get me the green chair. Right. How many chairs do you expect there, there to be? How many green chairs do you expect there to be in the garage? I guess theoretically, somebody would assume there would only be one. Not theoretically. Somebody would right. assume. That's what that means. That's what it means. Sure. And get me the green chair means if you go in there, there's only going to be one chair. And it's going to be green. There may be two blue ones in there, too, but there's only going to be one green chair. If I, if I meant something different, I would have said, get me a green chair. Right? Well, well no, absolutely. That makes sense. It, but is that an okay. example of right. perhaps so, one of the assumptions? Go ahead. That's, first, that's what I'm talking about. The word the, like I say, this is the, comes up hundreds, thousands of times a day in people's language machines. And every time they, for instance, if I said to you, well, what's the reason uh, you're late today? Is, that, is there really just one reason? <laughs> or what's, no, what's definitely the not answer one. to this? Yeah. What, what's the answer to this problem? But when was the last time you ever heard anybody ask, well, what's an answer to this? Or what's a solution to this problem? Because in English, we, we have two, two articles, the indefinite article A or an, and the definite article the. But again, it's my language machine according to its programming. And the default, the is the default in English, especially for the next thing, uh, reifications. But you talk about truth. What's the truth? When, have you ever heard anybody ask, what's a truth? No, Probably that's not. interesting. No. No, so it's more than it's interesting. Kind of limiting, it's devastating. Really. Oh, it's not kind of limiting. It's just devastating. It traps us into this narrow view of the universe that this is the way it is. Well, that's the way it is. <laughs> really? Oh, really? That's the way it is? Or is that a way of thinking about it? I think but do that, people um, think about this when ahead. their language machine kicks this crap out? They don't. Again, most people are literally under the spell of the voice in their head. They think they're doing it. So when it says, well, that's the way it is, well, then they believe it. That's the way right. it is. That's but insanity. I, I, think, I mean, that's about as nuts as you can get. 
that is something actually that I, I remember discussing with some friends of mine once. Um, and it became something that I started saying regularly, like a catchphrase was let us be precise in our language. Yeah. And the reason that yes. I said it and is we because can start with the <laughs> people. Well, yes, we could yeah, definitely right. start with the, but it was that people have a tendency to, especially if we're discussing politics or, or some form of gossip or, you know, um, they'll say things like the police are doing X. And I'll be like, yeah. which police are doing X? Is it those yeah, right, police? Yeah. Is it, well, you're getting into the all. next of the stupidities. <laughs> yeah. You're getting, you're getting into the next of the stupidities. The is the simple one because it, it's right. so simple and obvious. And the next one's a little more uh, difficult, which is what you're ta- where you're drifting towards with, with what you, that comment. Um, but, well, I'll get to that. Saying, I want to finish with this word, the thing, because I, this ahead. is so simple. It, well, it's just that, and, and again, the problem is, is the way we've all been raised, we've been trained to think that the voice in our head is something that I am doing, that I do this. I said that, and you said something, and then I said something. But that's just not true. There isn't time for me to consciously control my own language machine. It, it just doesn't work that way. You look at the complexity of, of the grammar of choosing words and, and putting them together in the right order and getting your muscles in your, in your lungs and in your throat and your lips and all this stuff to work together. The complexity of the speaking that I'm doing this moment is way, way beyond anything that can be handled consciously. It's done through what I call the language machine. It's a programmed function that, that we have been programmed with since birth, since actually before birth. And, and literally, it gets down to breaking the identification with the voice in my head and getting that the, anything that I can possibly say is just what my language machine concocted. And if I haven't taken the time to reprogram my language machine, if it's just operating according to the way it was programmed in my childhood, I'm in serious trouble when it comes to trying to think clearly because English is screwed up. And the word the is the the simplest and most obvious thing that you can see. You know, it's, it's, you know, about maybe a thousand times a day, your language machine generates uh, a sentence with the word the in it. And probably 90, 95% of the time it's, it's actually, imposing an erroneous, limiting, unconscious assumption. And the first time I realized that I had reprogrammed my own language machine, I was, I, I, I still like martial arts and boxing and all of that stuff. And um, th- there was a famous boxer a long time ago named Sugar Ray Leonard. You're probably old enough to remember him if you were a oh, boxing yeah. fan. I remember him. But, but he, he retired. <laughs> Yeah, okay. He retired uh, because he had a, a detached retina. And mm-hmm. uh, and then after like two years, he decided to come back. And everyone was saying that was really a bad idea because, you know, <laughs> because of the detached retina. And I was explaining this to somebody, and I said to them, you know, it's really bad for him to come back to boxing because they say that if you ever get uh, a detached retina in one eye, you're quite likely to get it in another one. And, and and both of us stopped just like immediately. And I realized that that sounded weird. What, what I should have said, yeah. what, what normal English would say is, well, you could get it in the other eye. 
But I, what came out of my mouth was he might get it in another eye, which in, in that <laughs> sentence, see, the actually would have been appropriate. The isn't always wrong. It's just wrong 95% of the time. But occasionally it is correct. It's a fine word that has appropriate uses. And that was the case where the was appropriate. But my language machine kicked out. He might go blind or he might get a detached retina in another eye. And we both stopped and both laughed when <laughs> we realized what I'd said. But that gave me such courage. I realized that my language machine had changed the way it works, that it just kicked that out without my thinking. That's just what came out of my language machine. That was the first time I had feedback, immediate feedback, that it was possible for me to reprogram my language machine. So I would just encourage any listener to um, – write the word the in great big block letters on a bunch of pieces of paper and stick it around their house and uh, just so they see it all the time and, uh, and then watch what happens over the next few weeks or months. It, it's so liberating when you, when you don't have to know the answer or the truth or the way it is and get that all we have is our stories. <laughs> well, um, I think that, you know, coming back to the issues of like clarity and such and what people say, um, you said you wanted to elaborate on this thing I was talking about when people say, yeah, you know, we were talking about the police or the military, yeah. or, you know, yeah. Or, as a whole. Yeah. Well, okay. There's a, a, this, the is the first most obvious of the five stupidities of English. The second is probably well, it's equally important, but a little more complex, but not much more complex. It's relative, relatively simple. And this is common to all Indo-European languages and probably all languages, period. But I, I haven't studied all of them, so I don't know that for a fact. But uh, there's a, tell me, uh, what is a noun? A noun? <laughs> yeah, you've, you were taught this in, in high school, in grammar school, probably. You probably can say it exactly the way you were taught it. Wasn't it? I'm pretty sure that's person, place, or a thing, right? <laughs> Congratulations. Right. That's exactly <laughs> what we were all taught. A noun I'm is happy a person, I remembered it. I thought thing. I was about to screw that up. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. You, you did great. That's perfect. Except that that's just simply bullshit. That's, that's not true. Not even close to being true. And let me uh, tell you what, what, I'm, what I mean here. Uh, the noun structure of English fails to make a, a really crucial distinction. Uh, words like baseball, monitor, eyeglasses, fender, tire, uh, chair, window, those are things, right? Right. Yeah. The chair, you know, beanbag chair, business card, comb, pen, sunglasses, all those things are things. Those are what nouns are. But tell me, what is love, dignity, happiness, freedom? Uh, integrity, honor, energy. Are those things? Concepts? Well, are they, no, are they things? Oh, are they things? Yeah, oh, we okay. can label them. Yeah, are, I mean, are, see, all these other things are available to the senses for inspection. If you and I have a disagreement about a pen, say, sure. well, we can get the pen, put it down on the table in front of us, and we can probably solve that disagreement relatively easily right that makes sense yeah yeah 
Okay. But if we have a disagreement about democracy or freedom or integrity, there is no thing. There is no such thing as integrity. It, it's a completely different order of reality. It, at best, it's a relationship between things, perhaps. But it is certainly, there is no such thing as love. And a thing, like I say, being something that's available to the senses for inspection. Okay? That's what a thing means to me, anyway. A thing is well, something I can, maybe a mountain, that's a big thing. Or it might be a planet, even. Those are things. Those or the moon, that's a to... Like those things, well, they call, things. I just did it, but it's like they, you could have different opinions about what they are too. Oh, and like well, of course, well, of course, that's all there is. Yeah. There is nothing but opinions about. There is no such thing as love or dignity or happiness. Those are not things. They are they are words that we use to specify perhaps relationships between things. The technical word for them is reification. And, and I would highly recommend you look up uh, that look that up on um, Wikipedia. Um, and it's R E I F I C. Anyway, you can figure it out. Reification. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact is that the, the noun structure of English confuses these two and treats them the same. So you can find people having arguments about uh, democracy or you know or economics or all sorts of subjects that are not things at all and so you can't i mean any kind of argument again those words are crucial they're very helpful science is full of them. force energy mass time all reifications but in science they use they actually define those terms in in terms of real nouns so if they're talking about force they're usually talking about a mass of a specific uh a specific type moving at a certain speed, you know, and so these, it, these can be very useful concepts if they're defined in terms of real nouns. But if they're not defined in terms of real nouns, if they're just floating around democracy, freedom, integrity, uh, all that kind of stuff, then you're in serious trouble because nobody, literally, you don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's really just that simple. It's interesting to me. I'd never heard that word reification before. So I did as you asked, and I looked it up while you were talking. Reification is yeah. a complex idea for when you treat something immaterial, like happiness, fear, or evil, as a material thing. This can be a way of yeah. making something concrete and easier to understand, like how a wedding ring is the reification of a couple's love. Yeah. Well, well, no, a wedding ring is not a reification at all. A wedding ring is a wedding ring. Sure. <laughs> That's well, not... I guess See, the, even I the dictionary is... From, yeah. Well, well, yeah, but they don't understand where they're coming from, unfortunately. <laughs> right, right. I'm going to read you something here. Um, By all means. Hold on. Let me, uh, okay, I, this is just some of the, these words. Reality, precision, enlightenment, introspection, sanity, power, labor, creativity, resonance, morality, tragedy, community, ignorance, perfection, technology, information, communication, compulsion, immorality, security, happiness, certainty, stupidity, trust, life, business, humor. The English language is full of these words none of them are things they sh it should, it, we need a, another part of speech we need nouns for 
stuff like doornails, you know, and tacos and tables. And we need another entirely different uh, part of speech to account for these words, which are which just don't apply uh, the same way. So let me read something to you. This is I, this is the, I sent you a link to this net. Uh, to this uh, website, and you can play with this afterwards. But what what it is is a list of those words, and then you pick sixteen of them at random, and and then say do it, and then it generates this paragraph using those words. Okay, so I just did that. I'm at that website right now. It's called the Wisdom Machine, and the title of this little paragraph is Love and Discovery. Okay, there is no okay. stability without beauty. The time fast approaches when integrity will no longer be able to withstand the forces of tyranny. Until now, people have been content with mere experimentation. But now we must move beyond confusion to authority. For we must always remember that the fundamental force behind originality is not defiance, but symbolism. And of course, we all know that the convergence of business and equilibrium leads inevitably to greater enlightenment. The age of universality has arrived. Uh, that you may agree or disagree with that, or something, but it doesn't. It sounds sort of like something you read in, you know, some philosophy book or some politician or something. But it, it doesn't sound like nonsense. You know, it just sounds like something really abstract. But it sounds sort of like normal English. No, but if if I was to put something like uh, and title it, say, uh, toenails and sunglasses. Uh, there are no, there's no ice cream without uh, bed sheets. Time fast approaches when toenails will no longer be able to withstand the force of uh, keyboards. <laughs> I, mean, I, go, I mean, it's all, it's just, it becomes clear that there's a huge difference between nouns that refer to things and nouns that refer to these reifications. These reifications, you can interchange them uh, just any time you want. Let me read you another one. This one now is called dignity and control. There is no culture without authority. The time fast approaches when submission will no longer be able to withstand the forces of reality. Until now, people have been content with mere simplicity. But now we must move beyond equilibrium to transcendence. For we must always remember that the fundamental force behind beauty is not community, but doubt. And of course, we all know that the convergence of excellence and necessity leads inevitably to greater justice. The age of consciousness has arrived. That one actually sounds like pretty good. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, but there's a lot but of But it's a nonsense. Right, it has a lot it's of different nonsense. It means it. nothing. Yeah, well, yeah, it's got, well, it's got, it's full of these reifications that can mean any, uh, see, in my, if I use them, I may have some idea what I, I might mean by them in a given context, but anyone else is going to bring their own meanings to them. So again, without defining what you mean by culture or authority or reality or transcendence or equilibrium, any of these things, without some sort of definition that ties it down to a more, uh, sensational level, you know, like real nouns, like doorknobs and broomsticks. Uh, it's me literally, it's meaningless. It is literally meaningless. And yet people go to war, people murder each other over stuff like this. 
Well, right. And a, it's, that's actually what was popping in my head when I thought about it when you were reading it. It was like, depending on someone's life experiences or their associations with the words you just used, it could be a completely different document to them, you know, like, uh, all yeah. based on that. And that's, you know, and, and that's one of the things I remember saying a long time ago was that certain words or terms were charged like with oh, a certain absolutely. energy that may not necessarily be what somebody implied. So for example, many years ago, I worked for Senator Mike Gravel, who went from being a Democrat to being a libertarian. And it was important for me to explain to him because I was my job as one of his political consultants, certain things you do not say to libertarians, even though <laughs> you don't mean them that way, the libertarian is going to take it in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and those words you were talking about were these reifications. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's it was things like for him, it was he said something about globalism and to libertarians, oh. some of them anyway, that means like unified world government. Yeah, that's yeah. Not what the big he meant, what he meant yeah. was, well, no, no I care about not. everything going on all over the world. <laughs> yeah, like, we're not separate not from the rest it. of the world. You, you, yeah, you, right. we can't isolate ourselves from the world. We are part of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, well, that's what I'm saying. Globalism is a reification. And the problem is 99% of human beings run, have this shit running in their head. And when they hear the word globalism, to them, that's as real a thing as doorknobs are. You know, I mean, that, that has some meaning for them. They may not be able to define it particularly, but it does have some meaning in their own head. And, but to them, that meaning is the way it is, not just merely an idea floating around in their head. And until the vast majority or at least a critical mass of human beings extricate themselves from the Paleolithic trance of language, no technology is going to save us because everybody is fucking insane. Literally, 98% of people, 98% of the time, live in a linguistically induced hypnotic trance. But I, I'm that's, quite optimistic that that is coming to an end within the next couple of decades. We are waking up. Well, we're definitely in a situation now where people can communicate in ways that they never could before. And that's oh, yeah. all positive. Yeah, the internet and changed it. everything. Right. No, it's I all mean, positive. It, and in way, well, yeah, and in ways that I don't think we've even necessarily prepared for. Um, I mean, we can only imagine that there was a paradigm shift with the telegraph, even. Um, but this fact that you know, I remember once, you know, thinking and marveling about this when I had an episode that was about the Middle East, and I was able to bring on a panelist from like seven different Middle Eastern countries to talk about what was going on in their countries. And I was just a yeah. private citizen with this ability to do that. Nobody could have done that 10 years before that outside of the actual mainstream media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Now we all have ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I, I is, think yeah, it, the internet changed everything. It, it changed everything. This is, well, I think, I think, are you familiar with the term punctuated equilibrium? No, no. Bring me in. Okay, this is the current theory of standard biological evolution nowadays. It, it was first penned, I guess, in the 1980s, maybe. I don't remember. Stephen Gould and Niles Eldridge wrote a paper called Punctuated Equilibrium in some biological journal in which they addressed a problem with the theory of evolution. Uh, the Christians had jumped on this for, for 100 years. Uh, you know, the fossil record 
You know, I mean, the whole idea, the way we were taught evolution is that it's this very slow, gradual process. You know, it takes millions of years for one species to gradually transform into another species. That's the way we're, it was, in fact, it's still being taught that way. But the current actual theory that scientists use isn't anything like that at all. And the current theory is called punctuated equilibrium. And what they found now when they look at the fossil record and they see there are very few intermediate fossils. What you have in the fossil record is one species and then in the layer directly above it, there's another species closely related to it, but nothing in between. There's just this one species and then there's another one. And the Christians have jumped all over that for a long time saying, well, you know, that's, you know, your theory of evolution is wrong. So anyway, Eldridge and, uh, and Gould said, well, they looked again and they thought, the way this really happens is that actually, well, first of all, they, they had two things. E species don't evolve in isolation. Ecosystems transform themselves. It, it's silly to talk about a, an individual organism evolving if the whole system it's in isn't also under some transformation. Okay. So first of all, it's ecosystems that evolve. And what they found was that the way they work is that these ecosystems stay stable for millions of years, long periods of time, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but, you know, basically long periods of time of more or less equilibrium with little waves and shifts here and there, but trivial stuff. And then for some reason, they don't know why still, I mean, what causes it, but the whole system goes into upheaval. And in a very short period of time, in terms of sometimes hundreds of years or maybe thousands or even tens of thousands of years sometimes, uh, new species evolve. And then it's stable, then the ecosystem stays uh, or stabilizes and stays stable again for another millions of years. So what you have is long periods of equilibrium and dramatic periods of transformation in a very short period of time. That's the way evolution works. And that's a completely different model than the way we've all been taught to think about it. And if you look at what's going on on the planet right now, we are in, we're right near the end of one of those punctuations. Humans are actually not, we're, we're really a, a species that's still in, in, the mid, in the midst of this transformation. It began around 30,000 30, years ago, 40,000 years ago. You can begin to see some weird shit going on and some cave paintings here and there and some stuff, you know, there, there, and you, you can, there's no one simple place to draw the line, but, but it's clear that we are in one of those punctuations in the punctuated equilibrium model. And my sense is we're very near the end of it. And that in the next say 30 to 50 years, what we're going to see is the conclusion of the punctuation and the beginning of the next period of equilibrium, which could last a million years. If we get through this, we will have a civilization that will be stable for another million years. That's stunning. Well, I certainly hope for that, and I, I hope that it's an evolved civilization. <laughs> like there's going to be a step. Well, if it's not, it won't be here. Yeah, well, no, yeah, listen, no. if we don't get through it, then we won't be here, period. As, as far as I can see, we'll be gone, or we will be in a new, a new world. New world is in just isn't completely different than what we have now. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of I mean, if you if you had a pet a pet caterpillar, and you'd never seen a caterpillar turn into a butterfly before, you'd have and it started to go through a metamorphosis. You'd have there's no way you could predict what it's going to turn into. 
See, I see Earth itself as a single living organism undergoing a kind of metamorphosis. It's in the process of transforming itself from whatever it was into whatever it's going to be. And we can speculate about that, but we don't know. (laughs) We don't know what it's going to be. Yeah, and I... I Uh, At least I don't. Well, it's funny is that even looking back on them, um, my kids were actually talking to me about this, was that they were talking about in class about it was kind of, I guess they were shown a film or something and it was meant to kind of help people understand that anthropology is probably never going to be 100% and they were they were using <laughs> a, a future model of them to analyze the 20th century from fossils and you know and, and trying to come yeah. up with summations as to what they believe now mind you I don't think it would ever be like that because we do have record keeping that was not available but um, the point was just to see how silly it could be. And there were a lot of funny moments where they were, you know, they were analyzing what like the road signs were actually like, you know, altars to our gods that we <laughs> put up on yeah, different yeah. places of the road. And, yeah. you know, it makes you wonder how much about history we don't know. I actually well, we just, need to be humbled. We need to be. Hum- sure. We just don't know. You know, this, this is a little bit like the bacteria that live under my fingernail. Right. Having some opinion about the conversation that you and I are having. Right. You know, that, right. that's sort of our relationship to Earth, although I think we're part of Earth's nervous system. I think we do have a function here. And we're Earth like that. I suspect Earth is bordering on, con- on, on becoming a self-conscious entity of some sort. And we're involved in that process. But, uh, you know, I mean, I've got all sorts of stories and ideas about how this, this could be. But it really, it's really like, you know, like I say, the bacteria in my gut having an opinion about our conversation. It's just beyond them. And, and what's going on in the universe outside of us, above us, that we're embedded in, uh, you know, I think we should take our thinking somewhat lightly on this. You know, we don't know. I don't know anyway. <laughs> well, that was there are so many different groups of scientists and, you know, and well, and also obviously politicians, people in certain social movements who feel very confident they have all the answers. I remember yeah, they're all um, listening. Yeah. Well, right. I remember listening to this guy named Nassim Haramine, and he kind of has like a, a reputation for maybe being a little quacky, but he was describing, because he calls himself a physicist, and he goes to this major physicist conference, and one of the things that they don't want to talk about very much in physics is what they really don't know. And apparently there's these huge, like, um, gaping, um, you know, like, Listen, holes we, in their the knowledge. current theory says that 96% of the universe is mysterious, dark energy and dark matter. Right. And that tells that me our of weird sense stuff. of physics is seriously in need of reevaluation. So he waits his turn to be able to be the guy talking and he goes up to the whiteboard and nobody wanted him there, obviously. And he, he draws a picture of a guy blowing up a balloon and, you know, he's like, okay, so this balloon signifies, you know, the galaxies expanding or the universe expanding. And then they're like, yes, this is like physics 101. Why are you wasting our time with this? And he said, well, my question for you, my colleagues is where did this guy come from? And he's pointing at the man who's blowing up the universe. And he said, the first law of physics is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And they got really quiet because it's another one of those very basic oh, yeah, 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 yeah. questions they do well, not have You know have who an Terrence McKenna is, don't you? You know who Terrence McKenna is, I assume. No, right? go ahead. Inform me. 
Oh, well, anyway, he's got a famous saying. He said, uh, you give me one, science's attitude is you give us one miracle at the beginning. <laughs> the universe just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> and then the rest we'll take care of. But you just can't question that initial part, where the fuck did all this shit come from? <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 scientists just don't like talking about that. No, no, science is in serious. I mean, it's got a lot of good technical stuff. Here we are talking across the United States. Couldn't be better. Sure. Uh, science is great, but uh, it, it's primitive. We are just beginning to get some kind of sophisticated understanding of the nature of reality. We haven't got a clue. At least that's my position. I don't, I don't, I'm not against, I love science. I I consider myself to be a scientist in some ways, but again, the best we can do is come up with stories. You know, science is just the best story we've been able to come up with, but it's still just a story. No, I agree. Um, And I, I do, you know, I do think that there is an aspect to science that is pretty solid in that if you follow that method, you're more likely to come up with a clear answer you know, but yeah, one of the it's a great Fresco story. Say, yeah. But one of the things Fresco used to say all the time was that the correct answer was to say, I don't know. And, and to be fine yeah. with that, you know, and if you're and not, I wouldn't even it, say the correct answer. I'd say a good answer. <laughs> right. Right. Of I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, he was just, yeah, I think we'll know that, more in the future. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That um, they don't. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I don't actually usually, for example, describe myself as a full-on atheist, I usually refer to myself as an agnostic. And even Jacques Fresco said yeah. that he just is waiting to see evidence. You know, for now, though, he hasn't really seen a whole lot. So he's an atheist. No. You know? Yeah, I'm um, not an atheist. I don't consider myself, and I, I call myself a radical agnostic. That's the term I use. But, yeah, atheism is as stupid as being a Christian, as far as I can see. I don't know. I mean, it's clear that the universe is mysterious and I'm content to uh, just live in that mystery and posit my own sentences and you know, theories about it. But I don't know. Anyone who claims they actually know is an idiot. Right. As far as I'm you know, I, I definitely, definitely agree with that. You know, and I guess this kind of, I, I find things that are, are irking at the back of my head to be brought up that I think are relevant. And, and I discussed a little bit with it. Um, but well, first of all, I'll talk about PC language. We, we've come to a point where people have to be so careful about what they say because they may use the wrong buzzword or uh, they may phrase it in such a way that somebody in the LGBTQ add another yeah. letter to the alphabet soup community might say or something that people of a certain race well, may say. Well, we have to step or... forward from, you know, I, I agree with you completely, but on the other hand, uh, at least that shows some awareness of language, which is better than most people. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess what I'm getting at is just that it seems that, for one thing, people now feel that they should have a right to be free of ever being offended by anything, and that I don't care what most people think. 98% of people, literally, I'm quite serious, are basically unconscious language monkeys. They live in a linguistically induced hypnotic trance. And their opinions, as far as I'm concerned, just don't matter. I don't care what they think. No, and I I don't allow it 
to affect me personally. I think the only thing that worries me about it is that sometimes I have seen it affect world events. Oh, um, oh every, every day. That's, that's why it's so important. That's why my work, to, my whole focus right now is the next two generations of children. To, to raise them with an awareness of the limitations of language and this stuff we were just talking about, the word the, reification, and a few other things, sure. and, and to break their identification with the voice in their head so that they can become editors and programmers of their own language instead of just literally living in a, in a linguistically induced hypnotic trance. A, a spe- when the species wake, see, that's what I think this is all part of this punctuation, punctuated equilibrium, uh, that the difference between the old species, Homo sapiens, and the new species that is now emerging is not uh, genetic. It's not biological. It's linguistic. That's the difference. That's the difference that's going to make all the difference in the world. When you have a, a population of human beings who isn't under the spell of the voice in their head, who knows what they're, they'll be capable of. Well, and I do think that's definitely a valuable endeavor. I just, um, I I guess what I, another part of it, aside from weaponizing certain words, um, you know, like now if they want to get rid of somebody's influence, then they'll go back to their Twitter history and try to find something, quote unquote, problematic they said 30 years ago. Um, But even less than that, I mean, if they have a certain agenda, like what goes into changing the definition of a word? as far as you are concerned? I mean, what, what, when do we get to a point where we can accept, well, the word doesn't mean that now, now it means this because. Well, the words don't actually words don't mean anything. Words have no meaning. People mean things when they use certain words, but the words have no meaning whatsoever. Words are nothing but puffs of air in a compression, you know, a compression wave in a fluid medium. That's all words are. (laughs) Meaning well, is is in the is in the speaker, and what they mean when they use a word. That's where the meaning is. It's not in the word. Well, I guess you know, I, and I see what you mean there, especially when you talk about them from their different perspectives. And I think that when people are trying to socially engineer certain outcomes, they go about doing it in such a way that involves trying to find ways to manipulate language to their own benefit you know of course um, well that's exactly like what i'm trying to do <laughs> well right but you're but you're using the light that's what you're trying to do <laughs> <laughs> well right um but we're I, the I good guys that, though right <laughs> well right we're the good guys i don't and sometimes i don't know necessarily that they really understand the full implications of what they're playing with but um like what they can don't be considered... you can bet they don't Right. Well, especially if they're being ruled by emotion and not logic, which is another problem I've been having lately, observing people on college campuses. Um, but was that uh, like the meaning of the word racism, it's so easy to call something racist now. It's easy to call something misogynist now. It's easy to call something sexist now. And I watch you know, people do things. Anything, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I watch people do things like uh, analyze movies They're, and they they will look for. The, the secret underlying misogynistic, sexist, yeah, yeah, racist message yeah. in a Godzilla movie. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it, it's something that's so not serious. But, but see, it's I, like, there's no know, point. See, I, as far as I can see, there's just no point in even paying the slightest bit of attention to about 98% of humans. They're not worth hmm. listening to. It's just that simple. It's sort of sad. But there are a growing number of people who are beginning to learn how to think and communicate accurately. Those are the ones we want to find and, and listen to. 
and health. But I'm really quite serious. 98% of people, maybe more, literally live in a linguistically induced hypnotic trance. Our language is hundreds of thousands of years old. It's really good at dealing with stuff like wood and rocks and, again, all the real nouns things our language is great all this all those reifications we are just all nuts and until that gets straightened up i don't see much hope but luckily i'm 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 optimistic that that is changing so we'll see i think no and i and i agree that what you're doing is definitely a constructive way to go about even affecting all of it um i i think that what I find myself compelled to do is to try to help people understand, and it's not easy. Um, no, it's not. The traps that they're finding themselves in, especially if they have an emotional attachment to them. And yeah. that, that's the part that I think is a problem. And I, it, and how much success about, and have I, you found in this? I'm sorry? How much, how much success? success? How, many people, how, how many people have you actually woken up from that? Uh, it's definitely a minority of those I have approached, but I haven't really. Yeah, well, I mean, like what, Graham? Dug my teeth into it until recently. What's that? Uh huh. Well, I mean, what did you say? I didn't hear you. Yeah, how many people? Ten people, maybe, that whose lives you have dramatically transformed from that previous uh, perspective. To be somewhat fair to myself, I've been out of activism and pretty much just interacting with people in person for quite some time. I well, no, but that's, that, well, that's the most that's the most powerful way to do it is person one on one, you and me talking. Sure. I, I'm just well, saying. I, 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 I don't. I don't think you. I'm not going to say you shouldn't do be doing what you're doing, but just be aware. Get ready for being frustrated. Oh. <laughs> it's it's, well, it's more effective I, I to talk about raising the next generation of children than trying to convert a bunch of old brain damaged language monkeys. Well, unfortunately, a lot of the ones I'm talking about are not old. Somebody's trying to convert these children you're talking about, it's the, and it's it's in the college campuses. There are people who have that agenda, and it seems to be working for them. Yeah. I'm hoping that those kids will grow out of it. But like, um, I don't know if you watched any of the. When the I say old, I'm not over the age of 21. Basically, uh, oh, old is oh, okay. after puberty. I mean, mm. really, that's why my focus is on children before the age of puberty. Puberty changes the whole game. They're language learners up until then. Once puberty kicks in, it, the language sort of solidifies, and they go into this new mode of refining the system that's there. And that system is pretty much embedded by the age of puberty. It, it I can be changed. Something about uh, but, that, but, but that we should be trying yeah. to teach languages at a younger age if a kid's going to be multilingual. Oh yeah, after after puberty, it's very difficult to learn language or or to reprogram your own language machine. It's possible. I mean, it happened to me. And I know a lot of people that it's happened to, but it, it's a drop in the bucket. One or two percent of people. Most people after the age of fourteen or so, that's it. It's too late. That whatever system is operating in their language machine at that time is going to be operating when they're 80 years old, unless they go into some serious work, you know. Is, would you say that That's it, what, when yeah. you're talking about work, is it like a psychological work? You know, I mean, is it is that how you approach it? Is just to try to change the way you think about? Well, that's what I'm working on right now. That's what I'm working on. Again, mm. I've decided that I'm going to spend my time on how to teach children properly. Had to indoctrinate them 
properly to give them good programming to begin with rather than trying to reprogram a badly programmed language monkey in adult life. Although I think that's going to become more important in the next decade or so. I think people will be more open. Again, as, as the world continues to deteriorate in, into chaos and you know, all the shit that we're seeing every day, uh, more people will be willing to do it. Meditation is a great, uh, a great beginning. Just stopping and observing the language machine, paying attention to it rather than being sucked up into it and going along with it, but just simply observe the language machine. Take notes, notice the patterns that occur over and over again. And notice that, in fact, every thought that pops into your head comes out of an absolutely mysterious, unknown place. That reminds me of... Um... And, and it's useful to, to observe that. No, oh, yeah. Oh, that reminds me of uh, analyzing politicians and recognizing the different strategies they use to obscure what they're saying or to try to be able to get away with not saying anything about a given topic. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was listening to a, um, there was a, a documentary that I'm going to forget what it was called, but it was more or less about, uh, apparently at one time on cable, there was a way that you could watch the complete unfiltered version of the news that included the commercial breaks, but without the commercials. So you're still watching and listening to what's going on in the studio. And this is when <laughs> oh, all right. they believe yeah. that they're not being heard. Um, in one instance, yeah. there was a politician that was on there, and the I guess the hairdresser was the one giving him these pointers on how to obscure what he was saying. But one of them was like, okay, so if they give you a question that you feel you don't want to answer, then what you do is you repeat the question that they just said and then start talking about something else entirely, which makes it look like you acknowledged what they said and that what you were about to say is in some way relevant to that, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with it. And then it looks like you answered the question and then you can move on. I was just sitting here thinking to myself, so here's a media agent explaining to a politician how not to answer a question. Um, and I, there's stuff like that that happens all the time. And I think that uh, it's difficult. It, well, I, I would say, for example, one of the things I think it was, I can't remember if it was Churchill, but yeah, I think it was Churchill who said that, you know, one of the best arguments against democracy is to have a conversation with a typical voter. And it, it's not even that Churchill advocates fascism. It's just that you, you talk to so many people that are so out of touch with what's really going on. And, you know, the ones that are either easy to manipulate or the ones that don't necessarily grasp the, the deep nuances of what's going on around them. You know, and I think those are the people that somebody like Donald Trump, for example, was very good at getting on his side. Well, um, that's what's so scary. Not Trump is not, it's not scary. Trump isn't scary. What's scary is all the assholes who voted for him. <laughs> that's what terrifies me. <laughs> well, and on the opposing side of it is that I, the, the tactics of the left that totally failed like the, the people oh, on yeah. the other side yeah. of it don't, don't get it. And in fact, they're doubling down. Like they don't understand the, yeah, the mistakes yeah. that they made no. and they're it's just going to do over. it again. It's all, this is, the United States will be gone in 10 years, maybe 20 at the most. Just like the Soviet, listen, the Soviet Union disappeared overnight, woke up Tuesday morning one day and there was no more Soviet Union, a bunch of independent states. Same thing is going to happen in the United States. You know, whether it's 10 more years, maybe a little longer, I don't know. Uh, Again, the old word, it's like the caterpillar and the butterfly, the metamorph. We are in this punctuation right now. The old ways are collapsing. There is no saving them. 
they're gone. A new system will emerge, and it's up to us to somehow manage that and create it or something. I'm not quite sure just exactly how that's going to work out. But it's clear that it's over. The old system is done. There's no point trying to save it. We need to figure out what the hell we're going to do, how we're, as a planet full of human beings, I mean, we could, we've got everything we need to create paradise here. We got, right. There's no shortage of resources or technology. We've got everything we need. The only problem is we've got a bunch of unconscious language monkeys populating the planet. That's got to end. We need or people, people that are still under the delusion that they think. can just continue to play the monopoly game when there's a well, limited they, People who believe everything they hear their language machine say. Right. You know, well, again, I, the, the people are, yeah. They get fixated on, you know, the different uh, values that don't necessarily hold up after a certain point. You know, that's one of the things I've argued when it comes to economics that comes up all the time is that it's not even about whether or not I necessarily feel that there's going to be an economic collapse. There's going to be an ecological one. You can't just forever take resources. Everything out is going to collapse. You know, the whole right. system is going to go away relatively soon, another couple of decades, maybe sooner. I hope, I hope not too soon, but you know, it's coming. Do I don't see any way around that. You don't think that's an extinction event? You just think it's like a dramatic change? Oh, it is. We're, we are clearly in the mat in the seventh mass extinction. This is all part of this punctuated equilibrium stuff. Yes. We are in the seventh mass extinction right now. Do you and, see and I wouldn't surprise me at all to see, Oh, so hopefully some of them, it wouldn't be surprise me to see 80% of humans dead in the next 30 years. I mean, I hope not. I hope we can do, I hope we, we can do it more intelligently and not have it be quite so bad. Uh, well, but I was definitely it thinking we were getting enlightened until I noticed that people were becoming less and less rational. And that, <laughs> that's well, the part that bothers so, me. Well, some people are, again, if, if, as, as things get weirder, people are getting pushed off one way or the other off the fence. They're either going to become more enlightened or they're going to become more hypnotized by the old bullshit. And, um, you know, how that actually plays out, I don't know. But like I say, I'm expecting, well, I mean, it's already tragic now in large parts of the world, you know? I mean, we sit here and sip our lattes in California, you know, but it's coming, you know? When the United States collapse, it, it could get really ugly. Or it might not be you, so bad. Maybe it'd be good for us in California. <laughs> do you think that um, such a thing, when, when you refer to a collapse, is it just, do you think like there'll just be like an anarchy explosion more or less? Or I mean, how exactly uh, I don't, do you think I don't it would know. come about? No, no I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm just, I look at it from a systems point of view. And I, again, through this punctuated equilibrium and the idea of ecosystems and, and, and the earth as a single living organism undergoing a metamorphosis, like a caterpillar when it turns into a butterfly. Some stuff goes through relatively unscathed but you know uh, uh, the butterfly usually has considerably less mass than the, the than the caterpillar that made it i mean sometimes 80 80 percent of the cells die in the process you know uh, some of the cells make it through some transform some just die off all the legs of a caterpillar don't aren't needed those are all gone disappear well that that uh, reminds me of that uh quote from that movie uh i think it was called the edge of tomorrow but it's the 
they did they redid it um with keanu reeves at one point and it was still pretty good but it was a story where an alien landed here and um basically was telling us we were about to destroy ourselves and you know that i guess the aliens had decided that it was time to take the planet earth away from the united from people because they weren't going to take care <laughs> yeah. of it and you know yeah. the scientist that was arguing with him said but that's the nature of our people is that it's on the precipice that we come to an awakening and so they basically Hopefully. just tried to fight to get more time <laughs> and i guess at least in that story they fixed it but it's yeah, but that's what I think it comes down to. It's like when I see people arguing about things like global warming, you know, I, I really think that there are still going to be people, particularly the ones who are financially caught up in why global warming and treating it would be a problem for their bottom line, are probably going to continue saying it's a hoax or not man-made right up until the water is in their front yard. You know? Well, whatever. Um, we'll see. Again, we'll see. Right. I agree with you. Yeah, most, like I say, I, most adults, I think uh, – are just going to continue with their old ways of thinking. Not just the rich ones, the poor ones, too, everybody. Most most adults are stuck in their language machine. They're not coming out of it, and that, that's just the way it is. But again, uh, they're all going to die off. Like I say, I could think we got 20, 30 years here, and there's going to be another generation or two coming online. We need to get them up to speed in their thinking. Right. All these old farts are going to be dead 30 years from now, so... Well, I try yeah, to, and I've been trying with my own kids to try to bring them about to that. But I, I watch certain films with them as kind of a family movie night, and they're not always super entertaining films. Sometimes it's just about, well, let's analyze this, let's look at what happened, and you know, try to help yeah. them understand. And I've been fortunate enough that they have been pretty good at detecting um, falsehoods. They've been pretty good at detecting frauds. They've been Listen, go to that link I gave you on the five stupidities and and learn those five stupidities and teach them. How old are your kids? I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. Okay, it's a little late for them, but it's not too late. Getting close. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but uh, it's not too late. Teach them. It's just, if nothing, well, listen to that five stupidities podcast. Sure. do Do you live with them? Uh, you know, I thought you discussed those on the first show I had with you. I could probably go back and listen to ours from forever. Well, I, I sent you the link. I sent I sent you the link. Uh, okay, you know, I will look at a, it. A couple hours ago. Uh, but we'll provide I would it say perhaps in the, the, they well, need, changes in the description. They need, they need to learn how to think. You know, that's really that they need to eliminate the five stupidities of English so that they can actually evaluate what's going on and make wise choices for their behavior. And I can't think of anything better you could do for them than to help alleviate the five stupidities of English out of their thinking. Now, when you come to the five stupidities, because it's been a while since I reviewed that, are they in any way related to the uh, the logical fallacies that people talk about? You know, they underlie that. Really critical too. Yeah, th- those I think are almost your. If you can solve these, if you can just get rid of the and reification, the rest of the ship is irrelevant. Those two will undermine everything. They underlie all of that other stuff. So mm-hmm. there's no need to deal with 15 different fallacies. That's all bullshit. You get rid of reification and the word the, and you've solved about 95% of the problems. <laughs> and, and the verb to be is another one. Uh, that's a little more difficult to explain, but uh, I would suggest you look up E prime in Wikipedia, E dash prime. 
Uh, it's basically English minus the verb to be, is, am, are, was, were, all the, all the forms of the verb to be. Turns out those are just absolutely nonsense, and there's no need for them. There's nothing you can say uh, with the verb to be that you can't say better, more accurately uh, without it. I think what I will do then is I will take these links also and I will I will edit the description of this episode so that our listeners can find those links as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, Heron, it's been great having you on. Um, is there a website or anything I can direct them to? Or is that like you still don't have your book uh, ready? Not, no, not really. I mean, there's gendo.net and, um, okay. you know, G-E-N-D-O dot net. But that's you know, that's, I did that 20 years ago and it's, it was, <laughs> I, I made that website in a word processor it was in the very beginning <laughs> of the internet. So it wow. was, uh, but it's uh, still cool. It's got some interesting, it like. it's got some interesting stuff in there. It's some really good stuff in there that people will have fun with, I think. But well, uh, you no, can save uh, that. Uh, you can save that. I mean, that internet, uh, you save your web, web URL and then update it, you know, maybe have a, actual unless you do web design just have your whenever you do your book or whatever you could just continue to build well on. no that's all gonna that that's all see, I, in the last year or so actually a few i've actually acquired a few people who who have been sort of transformed by an awareness of language and they're pretty committed to getting this shit into the world too and some of them have other skills that i don't have so my sense is, uh, you know, th there will be a new Gendo website and sometime this year or next year. I'm in not in any hurry. Like I say, I, we're still ahead of the curve here. You know, you don't, when, have, you, have you ever been a surfer? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I was a surfer when I was a kid and the whole thing about knowing how to catch the wave at the right time. If you, if you take off too soon before the wave is, is ready to be caught, then it'll wipe you out. And if you uh, catch it too late, it just goes right past you. You have to catch it just at the right time. And then it lifts you up and takes you on one hell of a ride, <laughs> if you have the skill to ride it. And uh, we're still a little ahead of the curve here. Uh, so I'm not in any giant hurry to get any of this stuff going. Because, it's, like I said, I think we're at least five years away from uh, you know, anything really dramatic taking place. So there's, there's no big hurry here. It was funny you bring up surfing because I, I used that analogy once when I was trying to explain what ADHD felt like and how uh, as you get older, you don't, it doesn't really go away. You know, what I said is that ADHD is like a wave inside your head. The wave doesn't vanish when you get older. You just learn how to surf. Like, it's yeah. still there, <laughs> yeah. but you learn yeah. how to kind of navigate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's it. And if you get good at it, you can do things like people have asked me, for example, how I can be on the air talking actively to you and at the same time chatting with somebody in the chat room about something that may or may not be relevant to what we're saying at the time. But I'm still fully engaged in both those conversations. And that's an example of ADHD as a superpower. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I thanks have again. What, go what, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just saying, say? I've redefined. You're, you've heard of OCD. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Obsessed. I, I've redefined that. I call it now FCD, which is focused, committed disposition. And it's clear <laughs> to me that I have um, 
something like OCD. And I'm, I'm probably on, well, not probably, I'm clearly on the, the autism spectrum. Uh, right. But there's a lot that, that that doesn't say much, really, because there's such a wide variety of possibilities there. But in any case, I have a focused, committed disposition to the extent that it is really not much else in my life that I'm really interested in. My my focus on language and and doing something about that is quite enough to keep me entertained and busy completely. You know, and I don't so see that as a disorder like at all. Yeah, I can't imagine life without an obsession. What the hell would we do? <laughs> it's funny. You brought up boxing earlier, and I actually my other podcast is devoted to combat sports, specifically oh. um, boxing included. And um, one of the uh, – I've had Larry Holmes on. I've had uh, James Tony on. I've had some of the old UFC fighters on. But anyway, one of oh. the things that came up was George St. Pierre actually has obsessive compulsive disorder, and it's one of the reasons yeah. he became such a good fighter. One of the things that he did that was really unheard of was that he became a very good wrestler. And in the MMA world, because I spend a lot of time at MMA gyms now, um, a lot of fighters have trouble acquiring the skills involved with wrestling after a certain age. Um, Like as it just becomes very difficult. Whereas George St. Pierre, because of his obsessive compulsive disorder, he would just sit there and practice these moves thousands of times like he would get more partners more partners i'm not done i need more partners and then by the time it was done the canadian national team wanted him to try out for the olympics um he was so good at wrestling and the and the announcers call him a wrestler but in his youth he did karate he had never done any grappling at all as a kid and normally that's unheard of um normally if you haven't developed those skills when you were younger you just don't ever get them and they they go to yeah are you familiar with the one championship yeah, actually, uh, I think that there's a lot okay. of potential there for being a really good oh, organization. Oh, they're awesome. I hope it succeeds. It's awesome. I just love it. I love I, – I one of the things I really didn't like about boxing was all the bullshit, you know, one-upsmanship and asshole behaviors of boxing. And sure. it's just so refreshing to see the respect that the fighters have for each other. In, in one championship, you know, how they hug the after the fight. The company takes better care of them, yeah. too. The company pays oh, yeah. them. Oh, lot. yeah. Well, the company enforces that. If you're an asshole, they throw you out. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just it's refreshing to see the, the respect and the honor that those fighters have for each other. It's just stunning to watch that. I love that it. sounds like maybe I should bring you on my other podcast at some point, too. Well, maybe I like to talk. You know, I've been following that for, well, like I say, I just caught on to one championship uh, maybe about a year ago. And wow. I mean, because it's hard to see boxing nowadays anyway. There just isn't that much going on. And I never really got into mixed martial arts because it's too, so boxing is simple. You can tell what's going on. But once they get on the ground, it's really kind of hard to, at least it for takes me a while to, to, to figure out what's going on, that's, but that's I'm, yeah, well, I'm beginning to get it now. Yeah. I'm beginning to, I've been watching it quite a bit lately. So I actually now sort of am beginning to get some sense about what's going on when they're on the ground, because before I just, I couldn't tell, you know, but so Mutai and well, everything, it's all great. Yeah. To any of my listeners who are interested, since we've kind of segued out of what I normally talk about here, uh, my other podcast is also on Blog Talk Radio, and it's called Combat Sports Podcast. And you'll know you found the right one if you see kind of like an old picture with a pair of boxing gloves. 
I was a little rusty on some of those, uh, but I did interview people like Ken Shamrock, uh, Dan Severn, you know, some of the early UFC guys. And I also interviewed yeah. some of the classic boxers. And I, I know that probably sounds strange to some people, but, you know, especially because, you know, some people, the Zeitgeist movement, for example, completely uh, go after that stuff that Alfie Cohn said. That about it's capitalism that screws up sports. Once you well, get yeah. rid of capitalism, sports is okay. You know, any yeah. kind of sport. If people choose to do combat sports, that's a choice they can make, and it's a wonderful sport. It's just if we can get the money out of it, it would be even better. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's why I was going to say the best boxing I watch is usually at amateur boxing events because there's no money sure. on the line. Yeah. They're all people who care about it. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, yeah. Aaron, um, it was good to have you on. I, I'd want to keep in touch, and you know, we'll bring you on again at another time for sure, and maybe even just right. as a panelist to talk about world events. Your, you know, your point of view on things is always interesting. And if I have anything good going on in the combat yeah, sports I'm network, here. you know, I'll, you know, I'll bring yeah. you on for that too. Let me know. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. And um, if you again, if you would like to support V Radio, I've set up Patreon. Um, I don't actually use PayPal anymore due to a dispute I've had with them, um, but I would appreciate it. And uh, at this point, any of the donations that you put are going to be put towards my kids. It's pretty much been my major focus is is helping them with what they're trying to do. And um, I'm as again tomorrow I'm going to have Douglas Millette. Um We're going to talk about a lot of different topics, but I, I was hoping to try to get together come some kind of a V Radio reunion, but I've been having trouble getting in touch with a lot of the different uh, frequent panelists I would have. So like, I'd love to have Aaron Moritz again. I, I did talk to storm clouds gathering. Um, that's another Aaron. And we're, we'll, we've talked about bringing him on again. Um, and uh, so thanks again for tuning in. Um, I will probably be on sometime in the evening tomorrow night. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jack Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.